Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get to the housing market. We have Brad Dillman with us. He's the chief economist over at Cortland, joining us out of Hotlanta. Brad, um, we've had some interesting, well, existing home sales yesterday. I think they were down 2%, which I found quite interesting. And we, I've seen more and more stories that maybe these high prices are driving people away from um, making purchases. How do you look at the housing market right now? I completely agree with that statement. I mean, there's no question that we've seen a lot of price movement resulting from low mortgage rates over the last two years at this point. And then, of course, we have the supply conditions that are, are often spoken about as well that are contributing to those pressures. Brad, one of the things we've heard from a lot of the home builders uh, this quarter and, and in recent quarters is they can't build as many houses as they want because it's maybe supply chain issues, um, labor, those types of issues. How big of, an, of a challenge is that for the U.S. in terms of trying to you know, build up our housing stock to get people into homes? Yeah, I think we, we definitely know that that's a challenge. Just quantifying that is, is really part of the, the even bigger challenge that we're facing. But when we focus just on what's happened recently on this, we're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is one where coming out of the Great Recession, we did a lot of things to inflate housing to help engender a recovery. And that, in turn, contributed to this undersupply situation that we're in today. So part of what we're looking at is not so much a question of what's going to happen on the supply chain side, but what are going to be the ramifications of this out-of-control home price appreciation that we've seen over the last 18 months? Well, we had a story on the Bloomberg a couple of days ago that said one of the ramifications is exacerbated inequality. Mm. You know, because if you're a young person and you can't come up with a down payment today and prices keep rising, you're not coming up with a down payment tomorrow either. And at the end of the day, you're going to be someone without a home, and we know that's a big store of wealth um, for people that do own them. What would be your prescription, Brad, in order to get us out of this situation? I mean, it's something that, you know, governments have tried around the world throughout history to figure out for, for so long, right? And we've never really come up with a good way to deal with higher price, with prices that are too high. Yeah, and often it depends on the you know, school of economic thought one subscribes to, but many people would point to the view that simply by intervening in markets at different times, you end up creating the condition for, for some kind of an issue down the road. I think we could see that over the last 20 years in this country when we look at the efforts that were done to, to increase the home ownership rate after the dot-com recession, actually even beginning in the late 90s, in many ways contributing to the oversupply and the out-of-control home price appreciation that was the housing bubble experience. And then the very efforts to get us out of that, creating this undersupply situation that we're in today. I don't have an answer. I'm just one economist. I'm not, uh, you know, a, a, a policy wonk, as it were. But one thing I would look at is the alternatives in the rental space. If we look at what's happening in the housing starts, we can see that multifamily housing starts have really taken off. Permitting has looked good, too. We know there's been this development in the single-family floor rent space. But to your point about what this means for people building equity and, and building their own wealth over time, that's a different question. So, Brad, one of the things, you know, when we hear from the home builders is, and, and, you know, folks that look at the real estate business, 
the housing that is being built isn't necessarily for the first-time buyer, um, and that's creating this inequality that Matt mentioned, and, or is adding to it, I guess. Um, it, yeah, obviously the margins are much better for these builders on, on the big McMansions and so on, but is there anything that can be done to kind of, you know, incent builders to build homes for the people that really need them? There's always policy actions that could be taken to do things like that on the margin. We've heard different things being discussed at different times over the last five years, if it ranges from trying to use state powers to overcome local zoning ordinances and things like this. But we'll also see the population respond, right? So people live at home longer to save up more money. They migrate to affordability. And there's certainly markets in the country. I, I point to Boise, Idaho as an example. There's just a lot of activity going on as people have moved to an area where they can price themselves back into the market. When it comes down to the savings that they can, you know, accrue in a more expensive area and then move to a more affordable one in order to deploy those savings in the housing market. Man, I've heard so much about Boise the last few weeks. It makes <laughs> me kind of want to look into the It's either Westchester or Boise, Matt, maybe. I mean, uh, I don't recall hearing mu this much about Boise since, I think, Legends of the Fall. I believe <laughs> there was a scene in that movie where Brad Pitt goes back to Boise, but... I gotta check that. I gotta check it out. Yeah, that's um, where a lot before, of the folks from uh, the West Coast when they get priced out of the the Bay Area, Boise was like a place to go. So anyway, well, Brad, Brad nice, Dillman, nice thank area. you so much for joining us. Uh, Brad Jill, Dillman, chief economist for Cortland, joining us on the phone from Atlanta again, talking about the housing market and uh, for those that are looking to buy a house. Very difficult times here. Limited inventory, higher prices, uh, making it very difficult. And the rental market also is no joke in a lot of these markets here. So, again, looking for that market to stabilize. A lot of eco data today, including the uh, leading index for the month of August. It came in at a gain of 0.9%. A little bit better than expected, so some good news there. Let's break it down with Ottoman Oseldrim. He is Director of Economic Research and Global Research Chair at the Conference Board. Ottoman, what are the key drivers that we saw in the uh, August uh, leading index? Um, good morning. Yes, the LEI rose sharply, and that those gains were pretty widespread among the, the 10 different components uh, in the index. Uh, you know, whether you, you're looking at um, you know, orders or labor markets or housing markets, uh, financial indicators, uh, pretty widespread, uh, strong gains there. And how, how sustainable do you think this is? Well, uh, you know, the monthly gains have picked up over the last three months, um, and uh, the index uh, has really, the trajectory has picked up uh, compared to earlier in the year. So that does suggest to uh, some sustainable growth in the economy. Um, you know, the LEI is pointing to uh, basically a, uh, a strong expansion in the U.S. economy. Uh, in a way, um, the underlying fundamentals are fairly strong. It's kind of normalizing growth. Um, but the way ahead, there could be uh, some headwinds and there could be uh, some turbulence. So, Ottoman, you know, how does, you know, this Delta variant continues to really be a difficult challenge uh, around the world, but certainly here in the U U.S., and particularly in certain parts. How does that factor in? I mean, it kind of suggests, are you, does your data suggest that people are kind of looking beyond that? 
Well, um, the data does reflect that to some extent. Uh, the Delta uh, does put a damper on uh, sort of the expected uh, switch to more services and more in-person service, uh, in uh, services in the economy. Uh, that does derail that outlook a little bit, and it does show up in the, uh, the labor markets, uh, unemployment insurance, numbers. Uh, it also shows up in, uh, you know, what consumers are expecting about business conditions, uh, you know, in six months, in 12 months. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, the resurgence uh, of the, uh, the Delta does uh, put some concern, especially for those consumer services categories. Um, so what about the inflationary hit? I mean, is this just not as much of um, a headwind as maybe we had thought it would be? Uh, we think that, uh, you know, inflation uh, will likely stay more tra uh, transitory or, or transient, um, although it'll, prices will be, you know, high for a while yet uh, before starting to come down at the end of the year. Um, there's uh, possibly uh, an adjustment going on, uh, people getting used to uh, those higher prices. But uh, that is also another area that we're watching in terms of uh, risks to this uh, business cycle expansion. Ottoman, you know, when Matt and I talk to corporate executives, we hear pretty much across most industries that supply chain challenges are big, big crimp in the reopening of their businesses and uh, short and kind of crimping their margins and so on. How does that factor into kind of the data you look at? Yeah, that's another area uh, that we're watching closely and we're hearing from our members at the conference board about these uh, demand and supply mismatches uh, that are showing up in supply chain disruptions. Um, and um, I think, um, you know, another um, area that highlights uh, those disruptions is the new orders data. And I think uh, some of that volatility that we're seeing there is partly due to those supply chain issues. Um, you know, that's, uh, I think, uh, again, uh, will likely be more temporary than permanent uh, as the economy uh, around the world, uh, you know, reopens. Um, these issues will get uh, sorted out. But there are some uh, frictions uh, that are creating uh, these volatilities uh, in the outlook. Yeah, and you have to expect the supply chain issues will even if they're temporary, still last quite a while. I mean, we talk about a six-month period, and uh, I don't hear from CEOs of at least big automakers that they expect this to be resolved in six months. Uh, certainly, you know, and and some of this is happening in the context of longer uh, longer term changes, structural changes in uh, supply chains uh, that have been underway. You know, uh, after the you know last uh, great recession that we saw, so yeah. that triggered some of those changes. And uh, the context is 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 one of these um, a major uh, a reorganization, I guess, in supply chains and uh, the these demand supply mismatches and disruptions. Are are certainly not helping, mm. uh, and as you mentioned, you know some some uh, uh, sectors are, are much more vulnerable to those than others. All right, Ottoman, thanks very much, Ottoman Ozeldrom, there, director of economic research and the global research chair for the conference board. ESG, environmental, social, and governance, has certainly become a very big topic in investing, both equity side and fixed income side. Let's bring in an expert there on the credit part of it, Robert Lamb, co-head of credit at Man Numeric. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to just step back, 30,000-foot view, and say, 
What is ESG investing to you and how does it factor in to your credit strategies? Yeah, great question. Um, I look at it from this perspective. You know, 98% of all U.S. high-yield mandates are managed by traditional discretionary managers. Um, And to me, that means that the majority of credit investors in the market are using a very similar investment process. So when the market structure is so skewed, it actually creates inefficiencies. And I believe real opportunities to harness those inefficiencies. As well, currently, I actually don't believe that credit investors are using enough data in their investment process. So the reason for this is because that some data sets and quantitative techniques are frankly just out of reach for many traditional discretionary investors. So taking a step back, as as your question highlighted, um, when I think about the rise of systematic credit strategies, where our value proposition is to use a fully systematic, quantitatively driven investment process that can really leverage the explosion of alternative data that we've seen over the last number of years, I think that actually goes hand in hand and is quite complementary to how we're approaching ESG as well. Um, And ESG has certainly seen an equally eye-opening increase in data availability and, of course, along with that data complexity. But what is it? What what is ESG? Do we just assume, at least for the first few generations, that this is really greenwashing for the most part? I mean, nice terms and a lot of talk, but, I mean, surely you're not making money on doing things that are – that are truly um, environmentally sustainable and uh, sacrificing, you know, an advantage for good social and governance. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I certainly hope that um, the majority of what the market is presenting and what we're presenting is not interpreted as greenwashing. Although I think um, as an industry as a whole, we have to be very careful about that concept because it does happen. And I think that there's real tangible good that's being happen, that being done in ESG research and strategies. It's really adding transparency and accountability to the companies. Um, but greenwashing as a concept, right, kind of that surface-level marketing of, of ESG um, can really be harmful to the adoption of ESG within credit and within all asset classes. So um, that has the potential to reverse a lot of the good that's been happening um, with this uh, increased focus in, in ESG. And to your other question, um, uh, you were asking about, you know, what is ESG and um, is, it, is it kind of a, a source of alpha or a source of returns that, that investors should be considering? Um, I think as, as a high level, ESG is a, a focus, as, as you highlight, environmental, social, and governance aspects. Um, that spans a huge number of sub-models, actually, um, and a huge number of aspects um, to be able to capture and evaluate a company within, within those, uh, those parameters. So it's a highly debated topic whether ESG is an alpha source, and I think the views really span the spectrum. Um, and from my perspective, I kind of look at it from a number of different angles, right? I mean, the, the, the primary question that you have Rob, to what, ask what are yourself, some businesses that you yeah. invest in that make money? Uh, a lot of my businesses make money. In fact, no, I know, you know, I know. Our, let's talk about them. I mean, I just, I want to get to the, yeah. to the heart of it, you know? So give us yeah, some examples, I, so, you know, give us some examples, Rob, that, you know, I, you know, that ESG investors hold out as 
this these are wins by doing ESG investing, empl employing this into our investment strategy. We've generated superior returns. Yeah, so I, I think some of the more unique aspects of ESG um, include things like what a company is doing in terms of their diversity policies. What are companies doing in terms of lowering their incidence rates and infractions? Right. Um, what are they doing in terms of helping and, and kind of improving the labor policies for their employees? Now, those are concepts that are relatively new to the market. If we were talking about this two, three years ago, you know, a lot of people would or maybe even further than that, maybe five years ago, a lot of people wouldn't even be considering that when evaluating a company. Now that it's on the table and now that it's such a prevalent factor, it can really be a driver of returns. So when you evaluate that, you know, that coal company or that energy company or even that technology company, um, you're going to want to consider kind of what are those diversity policies and what are those factors? And I don't believe the market has fully priced that in right now. One of the things, um, so that's what. Yeah, one of the things, Rob, I don't understand is what or who determines whether a company is ESG compliant. Like, is does does the SEC say okay, this security, this bond is ESG compliant? Um, you know, regu regulatory bodies bodies can certainly um, step in in a small aspect of of kind of the ESG segment. Um, as an example, you know, green bonds is, has been a, a relatively small segment. Um, not all projects, or, or sorry, not all bonds can be a green bond, even if it's coming from an ESG-focused uh, company. It has to be earmarked for a specific um, for a specific project and, and use of capital. Um, but for the most part, I think there are independent firms um, that are doing a really good job at evaluating kind of the ESG qualities of companies, kind of similar and, and in my opinion, parallel to rating agencies. Rating agencies kind of have an independent view of um, the credit risk. Maybe you're better off. Maybe you have an edge if there isn't a one body saying this is ESG and this isn't. If you can spot it before your competitors do. In any case, very interesting stuff. Robert Lamb, co-head of credit at Man Numeric. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I'm with you. Dude, the 10-year yield is all of a sudden above 140? Yep. Yep. What on earth is going on? Let's get over to Chris Gaffney right now. He's president of World Markets at TIAA Bank. And, um, you know, I saw someone writing today, Chris, that uh, the move in Evergrande was a delayed response to a report yesterday. I don't buy delayed responses in markets. So this <laughs> isn't likely a delayed response to Jerome Powell's perceived hawkishness yesterday, but what is happening in rates? <laughs> yeah, we, we're seeing the curves steepen. I, I think it's uh, um, just a move by uh, certainly by bond investors believing that, you know, the the economic rebound is going to continue and, and uh, um, you know, a realization that uh, growth is going to increase and in, in rates, uh, you know, inflation is, is going to run a little hotter maybe and a little uh, quicker than previously thought. Yeah, and so, Chris, I guess, you know, for these equity markets, the buy-the-dip folks, they're right again, I guess. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with them. I mean, the, the financial conditions for equity investors look very good right now going forward, you know, whether you have a short- or medium-term view. Um, you know, consumers' balance sheets are, are very healthy still. Uh, company balance sheets are healthy. 
Um, that should lead to higher earnings, and, and those higher earnings, of course, is what supports uh, equity prices. Now, there, there are certainly some risks in the market, and uh, you know, Evergrande presents kind of a new risk out there. Um, we've got the Delta COVID you know, variant, um, but uh, I think the, the economic environment still is very uh, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, no. See if we are we losing you, Chris? Yeah, nope, I'm here. Are you there? Okay. I, yeah, we're just uh, – it's like if you're on a Stand wireless phone at your house and you're too far away from the base and it's 1987. Sorry that's, about that's that. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Um, all right, so we're seeing rates take off. We're seeing um, stocks take off. Uh, what uh, are, are you concerned about anything right now? Are there headwinds that um, make you want to, you know, check yourself a little here? Yeah, I, I mean, there's still concerns, and and I guess the main concern is really in in the lack of, um, you know, the 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 price pressures being put on on uh on the margins uh, and when i say that uh company margins um are going to get squeezed we're seeing input prices uh increase uh, pretty much across the board and uh um you know they they're not going to be able to probably pass all of those increases on to their uh to the ultimate consumers so i do expect to see some margin squeeze another thing that's concerning is of course um, you know, the lack of labor participation um, in the U.S. economy, um, you know, is this a tight labor market? It certainly seems like it's tight in some instances, but, um, you know, the company's lack of hiring, lack of being able to hire uh, workers is, is certainly going to um, weigh on on uh, uh, on the earnings, especially for the service sector, where uh, they just don't have enough people to take care of the business that they have coming in. So uh, that certainly should weigh on uh, some of those uh, company earnings. But uh, again, I think those are, you know, it, it, it's it's something that will work them their way through the system. Hey, Chris, let's let's talk That's about valuation in these equity markets here. You know, as a former yep. equity analyst, I was trained to look at valuation, whether it's PE or EV to EBITDA, and it just feels like this market. Yes, we've had some good earnings growth over the last few quarters, but valuations feel a little stretched should we be concerned or how there concerned yeah no i i totally agree that valuations are probably stretched here in the u.s um but it gets back to you know with the interest rates where they are um you know low interest rates ultra low interest rates support higher price earnings um you know are we at an earnings peak um you know that's another question are earnings going to can be going to be able to continue to grow uh, I think in this environment, um, we, we can see uh, higher earnings. So while they are stretched, um, it's not a major concern, I, I don't think. And, and in fact, uh, I think we have further to go um, on, on, the, on the earnings, especially, especially if the Fed continues to keep rates at these ultra-low levels. By the way, is the debt ceiling something that matters to you? Does that, mm, good question. Is that a problem, you think? <laughs> it's not. Um, you know, they... Uh, it, it's it's a, it, there'll be some gamemanship uh, on both sides, but uh, we won't default on the U.S. debt, and uh, you know the debt ceiling will be raised. Um, I, I think really Evergrande is a similar situation. China's not going to let um, you know Evergrande failure uh, impact uh, their overall economy. So 
um, I think in both situations, uh, it'll work its way through the system. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, um, you know, it highlights uh, yep. that the amount of debt. That's the one thing it does do is it highlights just how much debt is right. out there. And so that is a concern. Long All right. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Chris Gaffney, president of World Markets at TIAA uh, Bank, giving us uh, his thoughts on these markets. He is in the buy the dip camp, and he has been correct. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.